In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and on behalf of the Australian Union Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I bring you greetings. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to be here with you this Sabbath morning. And I'm wondering if the team at the back can just please switch across to my PowerPoint on the screen. Did you know that of all the Christian denominations in Australia, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is one of the youngest churches? Our average age for members in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is somewhere around the 30s. Average age of Christianity in Australia, would you like to guess where that might be at? Somewhere in the 50s. And so, in one sense, we're doing really well as a church. In another sense, wouldn't it be great if our average age was somewhere in our 20s? Not to eliminate those who are older, but to engage, encourage, and involve many more who are younger. A few updates on some of the things that the union uh, are involved with across different spaces. And you, uh, there we go. Um, Mamarafa College, one of our uh, AUC institutions, a school to train and to equip uh, indigenous, uh, the indigenous community, had full capacity this year. 75 students training for community service, for ministry, for Bible work that are going out into their communities. Some of you may have heard of towns like Fink, of Tennant Creek, where the Advent message is uh, going in leaps and bounds. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is doing some of those most significant and exciting work in our indigenous communities. Faith FM, the church's official uh, radio station, um, is celebrating 10 years of operation today. I wasn't able to be at the celebration there in Melbourne because I had the privilege of being here with you today. 10 years of radio. Every single month we are getting calls and stories of people walking into Seventh-day Adventist churches for the very first time because they're hearing the gospel message on the radio. If you haven't seen it yet, and wait for after the sermon, but if you go to disciple.org.au, it's the official church website for resources for discipleship, for youth ministry, children, family, um, personal ministry, stewardship. There are blogs, there are videos, there are downloadable resources. I'd encourage you to visit that website at some point in time and see the collaborative work of the union, the conferences, the division to provide resources for the local church as well. AdHub is an exciting piece of technology that's going to allow us to work together as a church, not just pastors, but church members, to follow up and to track contacts. In a couple of months, any church member could receive a notification saying there's a person in the community that would like a visit, a prayer, a hamper, and we'll all be able to involve and engage in following up and supporting people who are coming into our churches, asking for help, and asking to be connected with. Uh, the church recently had the Youth Engagement Summit, Conference leaders, union leaders, lay members, young people from around Australia met to explore how can we be better at bringing that average age down lower. Some initiatives came out of that. Uh, one that has been going for a while is the Chosen Summit for teens who show spiritual and leadership potential. And just a few weeks ago, they had 75 teens from around Australia come be mentored, encouraged, inspired and equipped to become the next generation of leaders in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The union, partnering with a number of different entities and organizations, churches, groups, produced a number of resources as well. Uh, some of you may have seen these Hunter Chronicles for teens and for young people, teaching them basic Seventh-day Adventist truths, biblical messages, and identity uh, through stories that are highly engaging and uh, have to, um, questions, answers, quizzes, interactive experiences afterwards. Um, one of the other resources produced by the union is the Leaves of uh, Hope 
books. They're a series of children's books designed to share stories of how the Adventist church grew and developed in Australia. Some of you may have seen those are available at your ABC as well. Overall, um, we would like to invite you to keep us in prayer, keep your conference in prayer, your pastors in prayer, as we do the same for each of you. Um, And as we work to be able to bring Jesus into the hearts and minds of people in Australia who don't know him, who haven't experienced him, and who could benefit in this life and the next to know and to have him in their lives. As a great one. 
I last preached at Memorial Church about 15 years ago for its Sunday morning service. How many of you turn up to the Sunday morning services here? How many of you remember Sunday morning services at Memorial? It was back in my theology student days, and my homiletics professor for our homiletics exam would get us to come on Sunday mornings to do our exam. It was an absolute empty church, and he would sit in the very last pew, and we would have to preach to an empty church and to him. And as dawning as that was, I thought I was going really well. I'd prepared a lot. I'd written it. I, I'd, I'd practiced it in front of the mirror. Everything was going smoothly. About halfway through my Sunday morning sermon, my homiletics professor does something interesting. He looks something like this and see if you can figure out what he was doing. I took that as a sign that he had started praying for me. I heard some other noises that told me otherwise. So if you do start praying for me, keep those other noises to a minimum. How many of you have met a real-life pirate? Anybody here? Real-life pirates? Have any of you traveled widely enough to have met real-life pirates? Did you know there are more pirates alive today than all of the pirates that have ever lived combined throughout the history of the world? Did you know that? Where do we find most pirates today? Some of you might think they are off the east coast of Africa and you would have seen those in the news. There is a new and far more dangerous breed of pirates than off the coast of East Africa. Listen to how the news reports it. How, House of Thieves, how Australians have become the world's worst internet pirates. New, new breed of pirates. Have you heard about these kind of pirates? What do these kind of pirates do? Yep, we've got a three-year-old there. He knows all about that. What do these kind of pirates do? Not that I'm encouraging you to rush out to the theater, but a few years ago, there was this movie that came out. Now, if you know much about movies, there are some movies that are mainstream. Captain America, Batman. A lot of people go to watch those sorts of things, and there are niche movies. This is a niche movie. Only a select group of weird people go to watch these sort of movies. This wasn't by no means the most popular movie out there. Within the first week of it being released at the theaters, not on DVD, at the theaters, more than 3.6 million Australians had downloaded it illegally, had pirated it, had stolen it from the internet. That is a huge proportion. That's not even one of the popular movies. It's a niche one. The good news about piracy is that it does not discriminate on gender. There is equality among pirates. There are just as many women as men that pirate. In fact, one in four Australians are pirates. One in four. I'm going to count. One, two, three. Did I pick right? I pick right. I'm not going to put him on the spot. And so just look down your O. Now, I imagine in this demographic, maybe it's one in five. We won't go for one in four, but that's the average in Australia. And the place with the world's worst internet pirates, don't say it out loud, some of you haven't traveled uh, to this place. The place in Australia with the world's worst internet pirates, can you guess where that might be? Give you a few more clues, just in case you missed all the clues and haven't traveled, uh, you know, south of the border. The city of Melbourne. I think it's something like one in two or one in three people are internet pirates. Now, what does the government think about internet piracy? 
What does the government think about all these pirates downloading movies and games and songs and all sorts of weird and wonderful things off the internet? How does the government feel? Anybody have any idea? Does the government smile on it? The government hates internet piracy. Why does the government hate internet piracy? Would anyone like to guess? What do governments care about? Us, right? No, nobody said us? No, a few people said taxes. You're probably closer to the mark than me. Taxes. Every time someone downloads something illegally off the internet, the government loses revenue. And so the government is really upset at all 25% of you that are downloading things illegally off the internet. So the government comes up with all these plans on how to stop internet piracy. Have you heard of some of these plans? They use all sorts of blockers and filters. If you were to go to a website called, what's the most popular place for internet piracy on the internet? Does anybody know? Come on, some of you guys up the front here. I can, you know. You've heard about it. Tell me, what have you heard? What's it called? The, the place with the most internet piracy? What do you download pirated stuff? The? Come on. I heard about this on the news. The Pirate Bay, right? If you were to go on to the Pirate Bay on your device or at home, you'd get a website that says, the government has blocked this website. You can't access it. Are you with me? And when the government introduced these filters a year or so ago, 24 hours later, there was a story on ABC News. Who runs ABC News? Some of you said the Greens. No, it's not the Greens. It's a government-owned thing. Okay, it's owned by the government, and literally, 24 hours later, there was an article on ABC News, how to get around internet filters. Isn't that great? How do you stop internet piracy? Why is it such a big deal? If internet piracy was carried out by a company, what could governments do to that company? You fine it, you tax it, you shut it down, you take away its license to trade, you put its CEO in prison and all its executive directors. But piracy isn't done by a company. If piracy was promoted by a country, what would we do to that country? We would rescue its people from oppression. Right? We'd go in, guns blazing. But what is the problem with piracy? Piracy is not a corporate issue, and it's not a national issue. It is a person-to-person -person issue, peer-to-peer. -peer. How do you stop three billion people around the world from being friends? You can't. And that's why piracy continues to thrive despite the best attempt of governments around the world to block piracy. The human network, the human connection, is one of the strongest forces on Earth. And we're going to explore a story that looks at how this force has been able to conquer nations that nothing else has ever been able to conquer. How many of you recognize the name of the, the, the gentleman on the screen? Anybody here? Honestly, some of you are playing with your grandchildren with Lego. Did you notice this guy there? Who's that? Can someone guess who that is? The horse might give it away. Who was that? What about that? Is that a little bit better? Anybody? Famous horse, one of the most famous military horses in history. Bucephalus, anybody heard of Bucephalus? Who's the guy riding Bucephalus? Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great conquered how much of the known world? 
Where did he lose? What areas wasn't he able to conquer? Well, interesting thing about history. Who gets to record and write down history? Well, the guys who know how to write. That's a good start. One, the guys who know how to write. Secondly, the guys who win. Are you with me? And so our history is largely seen through the eyes of the Greeks and the Romans because they won a lot of battles. And Alexander the Great and his historians say that they won pretty much every battle that they ever encountered. There is a nation that they could not conquer. And they erased it from history, but we have other archaeological evidence and other sources that tell us that Alexander was very tempted. There was this nation he really wanted to have as part of his domain. But there was one problem. Alexander comes with his amazing military machine. He encounters this army, and when he gets there, the fight looks something like this. This is Alexander, and this is the nation that he was trying to overcome. Do you see a little bit of a problem with this image? So Alexander, he's too clever. That's why he didn't lose any battles. What he says to his army as they face off with this nation of seemingly giants, he looks at his watch. He had an Apple watch, by the way. He looks at his Apple watch and he says, oh no, it's time for afternoon tea. We better go home. And they pack their bags and they literally go home and they don't fight this nation because they knew they weren't even going to get close. It was really a David and Goliath fight. The only problem was Alexander didn't have any Davids. Fast forward a few hundred years later, and there is another guy who makes an attempt. Anyone recognize who this fellow is? Anyone recognize him now? Anyone carry his uh, photo in your wallets? No? Not that close? guy by the name of Octavian became known as Caesar Augustus. Young, sickly teenager who somehow gets to take over the Roman Empire and becomes really one of the greatest emperors in the history of the Roman world. So Augustus, he is braver than Alexander. Why? Because he sends his army to fight. Only he does it from a distance. He stays home in the office and sends email. Attack. And his army does just that. They attack. And they fight for a a couple of months. And then his army comes home they have some closed meeting discussions, and they, they used to have newspapers. Did you know? Only it wasn't paper, it was news rocks. They used to write things on rocks, and they used to publish rocks every day. So, so you, you pick up your news rock from the news rock stand, and it says, Rome has had an amazing military victory somewhere there, and we signed a peace treaty, and we gave them lots of money, and we're going to leave them alone. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like Rome won an amazing military victory? Did the Romans go around and sign peace treaties and give the people they defeated money? No, it didn't happen. They they basically got smashed and decided to go home before they lost any more men and any more resources. There was a nation that could not be conquered. Who was this nation? How many of you recognize the character on the screen? This is her people. Anybody? No? Kids? Closer, Bible character. Anybody? Okay, Uh, this one's for for my generation. How many of you, Sabbath afternoons, for 30-something years in a row, watched the Ten Commandments? Back in the day when it came out. That was the only thing you could watch. There was nothing else to watch. You remember that? I could recite it backwards by heart. 
We used to go to Sabbath school and they'd ask us questions about Moses and we'd give answers from the movie instead of from the Bible. Did you ever do that? Watched it so many times. So Moses, not Charlton Heston, the real Moses, he marries this woman and Hollywood portrays her as this beautiful Caucasian, slightly British accented woman, which is exactly what she was not. What do we know about Zephora, Moses' wife? We know that she was from the region of Midian. Her father-in-law was the high priest of Midian. In other parts, I think in Numbers chapter 12, it says she was a Cushite. And Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron had a problem with Zephora because what? Why didn't they really like her? Because she was dark-skinned. She definitely did not look like the person on the screen. The nation we're going to explore in a bit more detail are the people of Zephora, the Midianites, the Cushites. They were a really unique and interesting nation in world history because they were ruled by a... Clues on the screen. It was largely a royal matriarchy. It was the queen mother that would lead her men into battle. The queen mother's name in their original language was queen mother, queen of the Ethiopians, mother of the nation, Kandake. The Greeks, who couldn't defeat her, made her name a little bit more palatable to their accent, and they called her Candace, because Candace means Kandake. It was just a translation of that. What else do we know about this fierce nation? The Greeks didn't like them because they couldn't defeat them. So they called them the guys who are, and gals, because they were led by a woman, who are sunburnt or burnt by the sun. Why? Because they were dark-skinned. Can you imagine how humiliating it was for Alexander the Great to come here to try to take over this nation only to be repulsed without even a fight by a woman. Didn't go down too well. That's why they didn't even record that they even visited. In fact, Alexander the Great said he never even came past it. He actually took a different route. The term char burnt, burnt by the sun in Greek was Ethiopia. So this people group, the Midianites, the Cushites, the Nubians, became known as the Ethiopians. And today we still call them the Ethiopians, or at least this part, there's even a nation called Ethiopia. This Nubian, Cushite, Midianite tribe that could not be conquered by the Greeks, by the Romans, was in this part of the world here. As you look at the map on the screen, what stands out? What's interesting? What stands out besides the red blob? Just quickly looking at it, what do you notice? You notice that there is a lot of desert. What's that desert called? The Sahara Desert. Now, for much of human history, traveling by ship was dangerous, expensive, um, and it just wasn't the quickest and easiest way to trade. What do you notice about the southern part here of Africa? It's extremely green. We have one of the most fertile places on earth and one of the driest places on earth. How do the people down here trade with the rest of the world? Ship was expensive for most of history, dangerous, So there was another option. You could travel. Now, if you wanted to go from down here and travel to 
Egypt or to Italy or to the Middle East over here, how many of you, you think you'd try to venture going through the Sahara Desert with camels loaded with food and all sorts of other bits and pieces? Well, it was suicide to go through the desert, so what would you have to do? You'd have to travel along the, my wife taught me, the longest river in the world. You'd have to travel along the Nile. And the Ethiopian nation of Bible times was where? It controlled the mouth of the Nile. It controlled trade with one of the wealthiest regions on earth. Can you see why the Romans and the Greeks wanted to take it over? Because you take over that and basically you have access to the wealth of the southern part of Africa. There's a story in Kings chapter 10 that gives us another little clue about this nation. Just open your Bibles briefly there. We're taking a a short detour before we get to our main story. First, Kings chapter 1 and verse... Chapter 10, sorry. First Kings chapter 10, and we're going to read verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. For that day and age, notice it wasn't the king of Sheba, it was the queen of a matriarchal society. Sheba was the same nation as the Midians, the Nubians, the Cushites, and the Ethiopians. Same place, same people. Verse 2, arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. The queen of Sheba comes along and she brings all these amazing things with her. What is interesting about the list of the gifts that she brings? Let me put it in context. How many of you, when you go to the shop to buy groceries, Coles, Woolies, Aldi, wherever you go, buy low. How many of you remember buy low? Yes, the student's best friend. Um, buy low. You go and you look at a product and what do you do before you put the product in the shopping cart? If you're a student, you only look at one thing, which is price. The only thing that matters. How healthy is it? The cheaper it is, the healthier it is. If you're not a student, what do you do when you look at a product before you put it into the trolley? What do you look at? You look at the nutritional panel, you look at the ingredients list, and because you're a conscientious person, you know that the ingredient list is based on what sort of order? The first ingredient means what? And so you pick up a product, and I have to be careful, I don't want to get sued, so I'm going to make up a name. Let's say you pick up a product of cereal called No-No Pops. And you look at the ingredients list, and the number one thing on there is sugar. And you say, great ingredients, it's on special, fill up, right? So look back at the list here. The Queen of Sheba comes. And what is the first thing? Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, verse 2, with camels carrying spices. Now, if someone came to your birthday and brought you cinnamon or a gift card for the Apple store for $500, how many of you would say cinnamon any day? Give me cinnamon. Give me some turmeric. It's good for your health. What about some gloves? Garlic, my favorite. That's not how you make an impression when you visit somebody, right? But in those days, spices were very important for a number of reasons. One of the first reasons was that people had a shower how often? When they happened to accidentally fall in the river as they were walking past it. 
right? And so spices helped with perfumes, with aromas. It literally made your place not stink. There was another really good reason. The Jews ate what kind of meat? What was unique about the meat that the Jews ate? It had to be kosher. Now we say that with a smile, thinking that kosher must be some special type of meat. How many of you have ever eaten kosher meat? For those of you that haven't and would like to taste kosher meat, really simple, I guess, way to test it. If you have leather shoes, take it off and start chewing. This is kosher meat. What is kosher meat? You drain the blood. Where does the flavor come from in meat? In the blood. You drain the blood and you've just got leather. And so what do you do to fix leather? How do you make leather taste better? Spices. Are you with me? And the southern part of Africa was one of the places that had, was the richest in spices and very important. So when she comes through, she brings spices. Notice what Solomon sends her home with. He sends her back with gold. Does he give her any spices? No, no, no. I'll keep the spices. Thank you very much. You can have gold. We've got plenty of that. Spices galore. What else? Gold, very rich in gold, silver. We have platinum mines and all sorts of precious jewels, minerals, diamonds. Where do we source most of the world's diamonds from today? The southern part of Africa, exotic animals, ivory. Um, It was really a very rich, wealthy region. We get to our main story in Acts chapter 8. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. And if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to spend the next few minutes just exploring a particular story here. Acts chapter 8. Now that we understand a little bit about the Ethiopians, who they were, remember, very wealthy, very powerful, unconquered, undefeated by the world's greatest empires. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 27. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, of Candace, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Philip, what do we know about Philip? Who was Philip? He was a a disciple, right? An evangelist. What was Philip's main mission in life? Why did he wake up in the morning? To go tell people about what? About the resurrected Jesus who was coming back very, very soon. That is all Philip did. He skipped meals most days so he could talk more about Jesus. His family was who knows where. The Lord will take care of them. I've got to tell people that Jesus is coming soon. Philip is a one-minded man who only has one thing on his mind, and that is mission and evangelism. And he is busy doing it. In the middle of this busy schedule, what does God do to Philip? First divine intervention. It tells us that an angel of the Lord appears to Philip, and what does the angel tell him? I want you to go for a walk. Did you catch that in there? I want you to start walking. Where am I walking? Ah, just on that desert road. Going down towards towards Gaza, towards the Philistines. Just, Just start walking, Philip. Philip starts walking. Now, he's busy. If I was Philip, I would say, Lord, but I'm busy telling people about Jesus. There is nobody on the desert road. But he complies, he listens, you don't argue with an angel, or at least it's not a good idea to try. So he starts walking. 
Now keep in mind, he's not walking for a few minutes. He's walking for hours. It is hot. It is dry. It is dusty. But God has made him walk. Instead of telling people about Jesus, go for a walk. After a long, hard day of walking in the middle, hot, arid, desert sun, how do you think Philip's feeling right now? Tired, hot, sweaty, bothered, dirty, dusty. And in the distance, he sees something. What does he see? Now, the way we draw the pictures, and this is probably a better picture, but the way we often draw pictures, we imagine this guy in a little chariot with a single horse on his merry way. Is that what Philip sees? Someone had come to town. He was a eunuch. If you don't know what a eunuch is, Google it sometime if you're over 18. It's basically a man who weighs less than the average man. So this eunuch, who happens to be the treasurer, the CFO of one of the world's wealthiest nations, this is not an insignificant person. He comes to Jerusalem. Do you think everybody knew he came to Jerusalem? Let me give you an example. If Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg came to Kurumbong to have lunch at Aladdin's, would you hear about it? Would you know? And if you came out of church and looked that way, what would you see? You'd see hundreds of people. You'd see four-wheel drives and security and helicopters and, you know, the SWAT team there protecting Aladdin's and so on. This was a big deal that one of the wealthiest, most powerful men on earth, eunuch as he was, comes to Jerusalem. So as the caravan, possibly hundreds of camels and donkeys and horses and chariots, are slowly making their way through the desert, do you think Philip has any idea who it is? You bet. And then when he looks at the people, what does he notice about all of the people? What can you notice from a distance? They are? They are darker in skin. Of course he knew who it was. He's been walking all day. He's hot, he's tired, he's bothered, it's dusty. And what does Philip do? What does he do? Does he rush up? Oh, so good to see you guys. How you doing? Let me tell you about Jesus. 300 people, finally, I can tell somebody about Jesus. Is that what he does? Look at the verse really carefully because he doesn't do that. Let's go back to our passage. Verse 29. So he's watching. He's seeing. The Spirit. Okay, second divine intervention. This is really significant. God tells, Peter, tells Philip, go for a walk. You think that Philip would put two and two together. He sees, go for a walk. He sees the entourage, the caravan. Yes, that's why God sent me here. But no, not Philip. He doesn't want to go anywhere near that thing. The Spirit has to wake Philip up again. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and, and, and. In some it says overtake it. In some it says stay near it. So God tells Philip, okay, Philip, you don't want to go, but I want you to go. And I don't want you just to go. Because if God had simply told Philip, I want you to go to that chariot, you know what Philip would have done? He would have done a really quick march, maybe touched the chariot, and then run away again. Why would he do that? What's wrong with these people? Hmm? 
Why would Philip not want to get near this chariot? Why does God from heaven, in his busyness to run the universe, have to say to Philip, go near it. Oh, by the way, Philip, don't run away. I want you to stay near it. Why? Because Philip is allergic. What is he allergic to? To people who are non-Jewish. It was an allergy that most Christians had in the early church. And he did not want to go near the chariot, and he did not want to stay near it. So God has to tell him to walk for an entire day, be absolutely exhausted, go near it, stay near it. Now that you're there, the Ethiopian finally says, I've got a question, do you want to come up? Philip is defeated, he's tired, he's exhausted, he's already impure, he's already got close enough, probably touched these people by accident, he's already dirty, he might as well have a rest on the chariot. Are you with me? So he sits in the chariot, and you can read the rest of the passage yourself. He starts to finally, maybe, possibly, could it be, maybe that's why God sent me here? And he starts to share about Jesus with this person. Verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Third divine intervention. Finally, Philip, you know, he's broken protocol. He sat next to a Gentile, touched a Gentile, and a eunuch Gentile. That was even lower down the rung. Well, I might as well baptize him now. I'm already dirty. Baptizes him. What does God do to Philip then? Some of you that have seen Star Trek think that was innovative. Beam me up, Scotty. But that was taken right out of Acts chapter 8. What does God do to Philip? Beam me up, Philip, right? Why didn't God beam Philip down the first time? Wouldn't that have saved some time? Because God obviously can. But no, God makes him walk. I think if Philip wasn't tired enough, he wouldn't have even sat in the chariot. God had to wear him out, tire him out, make him thirsty enough to finally agree to sit in the chariot and share the gospel. And now that he's finally done what God asked him to, God just beams him up. God carries out this divine intervention, which he could have done at the very beginning to save everybody a lot of time. Who is this story about? Is this the story of the Ethiopian eunuch? That's how we normally tell it, don't we? That's how we normally see it. Do you think the early Christian church read it as the story of the Ethiopian eunuch? What do you think when Philip went and told his friends? What do you think they were all thinking? Do you think any of them were thinking, praise the Lord, there's a eunuch who's baptized. Do you think any of them were thinking that? None of them were thinking that. Because years later, they have a general conference session to argue about the whole thing. And years later, after the general conference session, when they finally say it's okay to touch someone who's a Gentile... Peter is having lunch with Gentiles. And what happens? Some Jews come and see Peter eating with Gentiles. And when Peter notices the Jews, he picks up his tray and says, oh, sorry, guys, I've got to go. I've got a meeting on. Look at the time. This was an ongoing issue. This story was not about the Ethiopian eunuch. This story was about Philip. Could God have sent an angel to teach the eunuch? Did God send an angel in this story? Yes, he did right from the beginning but God did not get the angel to connect with the eunuch God got the angel to connect with Philip Philip I want you to go Philip goes Philip I want you to keep walking stay near it and then beam me up this story was a powerful lesson for Philip 
By the end of the first century, Ethiopia had become one of, if not the first official Christian nation. What had conquered Ethiopia? It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Greeks. It was that personal one-on-one relationship. The fact that Philip, through his stubbornness, was coaxed by the Spirit to sit down and to talk with this man and to share the gospel in his own words. Nowhere near as good as what the angel could have done. The Ethiopian eunuch goes home, one of the most influential men in that empire. Within decades, Ethiopia is a Christian nation because of that person-to-person connection. You can travel there today and see churches from the third century that are still standing. What was God trying to teach Philip? Open your Bibles. Last passage we're going to explore together. Matthew chapter 1. By the way, thinking of time, I asked Pastor Abel. He said we can go till about 2 o'clock. Is that right? Yeah? You won't be laughing at 1.30. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. No, we are not going to 1.30. I promise you that. Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Names were very significant in ancient times. Jesus, what does that mean? Save his people from their sins sins. Now in ancient times when you wanted to emphasize something, you couldn't put it in neon lights, you couldn't Facebook it. How would you emphasize something really important? You do what every good parent knows. How do you get through to your children? Repeat, repeat, repeat. You brushed your teeth? You still brushing your teeth? Does your mom still ring you up and say, have you brushed your teeth? We do it for life, right? Have you brushed your teeth? And so here we see repetition in this passage. Notice, but repetition is slightly different to add a different accent, but to also encourage us to look at a different angle of the same issue. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You will call him Jesus, which means what? Save his people from their sins. You will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us means save his people from their sins. Now, we're going to do a bit of biblical gymnastics because you've been sitting down for too long. Save his people from their sins. What is sin? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is transgression of the law. Are we on the same page there? Sin is transgression of the law. No arguments, no doubts. Which law? Ten Commandments. Sermon on the Mount. Some of the Old Testament. Was Jesus asked that same question about the law? What's the most important law? What did Jesus say? He didn't actually say what the most important law was. You know what he says? He says, instead of me telling you which one the most important law is, I'm going to tell you what all of the law is about. And what is all of the law about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And... Your neighbor as yourself. So sin is a transgression of the law. And the law is, what's the law about? All of the law. Loving 
God and loving others. So what is sin? Sin is not loving God and not loving others. Are you with me? Does that logic make sense to everybody else out here or is it just me? Sin is broken relationships with God, broken relationships with each other. So Jesus came to save us from, what did he come to save us from? Broken relationships with God and broken relationships with each other. So salvation is the process of what? Of healing relationships between humans and God and humans and each other. Is that how we describe it? Is that how we think about it? Let me give you an example. I I travel a lot for work. I have a very gracious, patient, generous, kind wife. And people say to me, how do you guys make it work when you're away so much? I say to them, you know what? We have a fantastic marriage. And they say, well, what do you do? How have you made it such a fantastic marriage? And I say, look at us. We haven't killed each other yet. Isn't that how you describe your marriage? My wife and I, we don't even steal from each other. Isn't that what makes a good marriage? How do we describe salvation? Are you saved? Yes, I am. I don't steal. I don't kill. I don't cheat. I, 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 I even drink so good. We describe salvation often in terms of the things that we don't do. We're really good at that. So why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, I, I don't watch TV on Sabbath. I don't go to the game on Sabbath. I don't have fun on Sabbath. Would you like to become a Seventh-day Adventist and also not do a lot of things? Uh, do we? Do we honestly describe Seventh-day Adventism in those terms? What is Seventh-day? We don't drink. Yes, we're not as happy as everybody else because you need a fair, you know, three, four beers, light beers to be really happy. That's why they call it happy hour. We don't do happy hour. Are you with me? We have, we have made Seventh-day Adventism a thing that we don't do, but salvation is not about all the things we don't do. Can you imagine going to heaven and saying, praise the Lord, we're saved. Now we're not going to do all these things. What's heaven all about? All the things we don't do. My wife and I, we have a good relationship because we don't. We don't, we don't, we don't. We just don't. What about, no, no, we don't. Is that what makes a good relationship? Is that what salvation really is? Is that what Jesus came to live and to die so that we don't? Is that how our children are growing up? With a faith where we don't? Or are our young people growing up understanding that the beauty of the Seventh-day Adventist message is the holistic, complete healing, restorative process between God and humanity and humans and each other? Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Because it's the complete holistic package of how to have better relationships with God, of how to have better relationships with other people. Jesus could have sent the eunuch a PowerPoint He could have sent the eunuch a book or a resource or an angel. What did Jesus send the eunuch? A person. Because salvation is not purely and solely about a set of instructions and a message. And we keep doing that. We want to put everything in book form so that we can give it to someone so we don't have to talk to them. We did our part. We shared the message. Did anybody turn up? No, but we we did our part. 
But Jesus didn't send a message from heaven. What did Jesus do? Emmanuel, what is the plan of salvation? God with us. God wants to save us. But it's not to save us from all the bad things that we do to ourselves. That's just the beginning. You know, and I have to be careful. Please turn the cameras off. Anybody that works, works for the church, please walk out and don't take any notes from here on. When we talk about salvation, some of the most common language we use on salvation are things like justification, sanctification, and grace. Is that a fair comment? We argue in and out. I've grown up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Every three years, we go through saved by works, saved by faith. How many times did Jesus talk about grace and sanctification and justification? How many times did Jesus use the word justification, sanctification, and grace in the same sentence? How many times? How many times? Not once did Jesus use the word justification and sanctification. He didn't even argue about it. Why do we argue about it all the time? Why have we made it such a legal context? We have made salvation a legal experience. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because one of the most famous Christians who wrote a lot about it was a lawyer. What do you expect the lawyer to write? You see, when a lawyer goes on a blind date, he says, Hi, my name is Jim. Would you ever be open to a prenup agreement? And if the young lady says yes, then they can have dinner. If not, he's out of there. You're not going to waste time without a prenup. And so we read Jesus through the eyes of Paul. We interpret the life of Jesus through the eyes of Paul, who was a lawyer. Is that probably the best way to interpret Jesus? Or should we interpret Paul through the eyes of Jesus? What do you think about that? Should we know and understand Jesus so well that then all those legal terms, they're important, they enhance our understanding, they help us, but that's not the predominant thing. Why do my wife and I have a good marriage? Because we have a 34-page prenup. And yet that's what we do with salvation. We've made it a prenup. And that's why our young people at times, sadly, even commit suicide. Why? Because they don't understand God. Because they think that God is on the edge of his chair. And, 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 and when you slip, what if? What if you just said a bad word and then you get hit by a bus? Have you ever heard that argument before? Are you saved or not saved? What do you think about that? Let's have a Sabbath school on that. In fact, let's have three Sabbath schools on that. In fact, let's actually split the church over that. Jesus did not come to be terms and conditions with us. Jesus came to be God with us. Does our community know that we are saved? Let's, let's start at home. Does your spouse know that you are saved? Do your children know that you are saved? How do they know that? Because uh, you come to church on Sabbath. And because you're one of the good ones. You even do your Sabbath school lesson. Yeah, 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 I can show you. I've actually made notes and scribbles. Yeah, yeah, over here. And, and I pay tithe. Oh, no, no, I don't do the envelope thing. I, I, I use e-giving. It's, it's, it's digital now. Of course my children know I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and I'm saved. Look at all the, oh, and look at all the things I don't do. <laughs> yeah, you know, when they had the Olympics and it was the opening ceremony was on a Friday night. You remember that? Yeah, me? No. I, no. I was watching Doug Bachelor on 3OBN. Of course I'm saved. Of course I have a relationship with Jesus. Look at all the things I don't do. 
Are our relationships at home better today than they were yesterday? Do our children see us reflect the love, the mercy, the compassion, the character of God more today than yesterday? If they do, and if you can answer yes, and don't answer yes, yes, I'm sure my wife thinks I'm better today than yesterday because I was away more today. Ask your spouse, your husband, your wife, ask your children. They can tell you honestly if Jesus is working in your heart because how you relate to them, the care, the compassion, the patience, the love, the warmth, the apologies that you share 70 times 7 every day when you stuff up. They know Jesus is working in your heart. Do people at church know that we're in a saved relationship with Jesus? Do they know that? Well, they don't really know that because I don't even know who goes to my church. Because I go to church because that's what you do to get to heaven. And I go to church so I can go home and feel, you know what? Did that. Take that off the list. Don't have to do that for another week. I don't know if I could put up with one of those sermons again. He's gone over time. My, 17 minutes into lunch already. Who does he think he is? These guys from the union and the conference, I tell you what, terrible. Is our church experiencing salvation? You know how you know if your church is experiencing salvation? Because your relationships with each other are better. Because this Sabbath and next Sabbath, you'll know one more person in your church. There's one more person that might be praying for you or you're praying for. Because this board meeting was better than the last board meeting. This business meeting was better than the last. Because our young people are seeing us want to have better relationships with them. How does community know that we're in a saving relationship with Jesus? How does it know? Because we run programs. And look how many programs we have. How can they not know we know Jesus? Program after program after program. I love programs. As a pastor, I think I ran more programs than most pastors running their entire lifetimes. I wanted to have so many people at my church that, that I had to letterbox, and I used to do it on rollerblades so more people could get to know Jesus because I could do more letterbox cards. And then we would do programs. We would have program after program after program. And the people from the community would come. People are searching. People are lonely. Loneliness is the biggest disease in Australia. 60% of people feel significantly lonely at least once a month. Are we addressing loneliness as a church or are we giving them things that we think they need? Oh, brothers and sisters, you need, uh, yeah, yeah, you kind of need to eat healthier. Yeah, well, I would if I had someone to eat with. I'm just lonely. Sure, let's share the health message. But our first and primary focus is to bring salvation, better relationships. Does our community know where you're there? I'd run programs. We have really good programs. And do you know what we do as Adventists? We come to the program. Ah, Mary. That's Mary's the local deaconess. Good to see you. What have you been up to since I last saw you on Sabbath uh, yesterday? And we talk to each other. What do the people in the community do? They're sitting there in their own group or alone, and we do the program, and we go home, and we say, we've done a good program, haven't we? Yep. But they don't want to come to church. I wonder why. The program is really good. Why do people come to church? Do you think people come to church because of the good sermons? Where can you get good sermons these days? Come on, guys, help me out. You know where to get good sermons from. Where do you get them from? Loud voice. YouTube. Can you get good sermons on YouTube? Can you? 
You can get good sermons on YouTube. Oh, people come to church because the potluck lunches are amazing. Can you find better food than the potluck lunch? Of course you can. You can go somewhere and actually have meat. Can't get that at potluck lunch. Why do people come to church? We want them to come to church, but what do we want to give them when they come to church? Truth. Where can you find truth? There is only one universal, socially accepted place for truth. Where is it? Come on, guys, help me out again. Starts with G, ends in Google. If you want truth, you go to Google. You do not come to church for truth. You do not come to church for good sermons. You do not come to church for fake meat. You get the real stuff somewhere else. Why do people come to church? Why would they want to come to church? Relationships, better relationships with each other. If we do a program, let's run all the programs we can. Why do we run programs? To tell them the health message. To tell them about the mark of the beast. Now they know. We've given it to them. We're free of responsibility, no more. It's done. Why do we do programs? There's only one reason to ever do a program. It's a place to connect and meet people. They're not even going to hear most of anything else. They come because they're lonely, because they want community and connection. Are we in a saving relationship with people in our community? We have a unique message. Our understanding of death, our understanding of hell, our understanding about the character of God is second to none. Nobody can share and describe the character of God the way that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been blessed with our message. Our lifestyle understanding is a complete package to have better relationships with each other. Because when we're healthy, we're not sick. And when you're sick, you can't have relationships when you're sick very well. How many men have ever had the man flu? What happens to relationships with your wife when you get the man flu? So God gave us the health message, so marriages don't fall apart, right? The health message is avoidance of the man flu. Are you with me? The whole bucket of Adventist truths is there to help us have better relationships with God, better relationships with each other. Are we being saved? Are we allowing Jesus to save us? How are your relationships? I'd like to challenge and encourage you with just one thing. I know it's true for you as it is for me. Think of the first relationship that comes to mind that could be that one step better. Could be your spouse, could be your children, could be your next door neighbor, could be your boss at work, it could be a church member who happens to be sitting on the opposite side of the church. I'd like to invite you and challenge you as we go through the last hymn, as we reflect on our time together, to make a commitment and to, to share one prayer between you and God Lord, save me. Save me, Lord. Not to get rid of all these bad things I shouldn't be doing. They get taken care of themselves often. Help me have that one better relationship. More compassionate, kinder, more gracious, more forgiving. Forgiving towards my spouse, towards my children, towards that church member. One relationship this week, one at a time. Let's allow the Lord to truly, truly save us. For that's why he came. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You shall call him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us.